the 24th of March 2021 today. One year ago, in March 2020, many people were told to socially distance, stay at home, and only travel to work if necessary. Many analysts then spent hours calculating the cost to the economy. These lockdowns, as they became to be known, shut down the traditional levers of the economy. Restaurants and hotels, live entertainment, retail, sports and public transportation suffered closure due to government-mandated shutdowns. Many went out of business. Some governments had large bailouts to supplement the loss to small and medium-sized businesses, as well as to the employees who were either permanently let go or temporarily let go. The word of the day was furloughed. That said, some parts of the economy actually did well. Anything online, businesses equipped to go remote, home delivery, etc., all did exceedingly well. As 2020 progressed and people saw how things panned out, some shut or partly opened their stores and their shops and their businesses, and then partly shut again with localized lockdowns on and off through 2020 and 2021. But it got me thinking, what is an economy? What is economic activity? And what is the measure of an economy? An economy is a set of interrelated production and consumption activities that aid in determining how limited resources are allocated. In any economy, the production and consumption of those goods and services are used to fulfill the consumption needs of those living and operating within and outside of that jurisdiction. Now, I am the seller of the fruit. I have a surplus of fruit. I am willing to exchange the item for fiat currency, such as euros or dollars, and therefore barter what I do not need. Somebody shows up, they give me the money, and I give them the fruit. This entire exchange creates the economy, because it is an economic activity. Some of your brains are now thinking capitalism or communism. Do not. Not yet. These are philosophical concepts, capitalism and communism. And I shall come to those later. This exchange that I just described is wedded in thousands of years of human history, and the theories around capitalism and communism came much later. In fact, as recently as 250 years ago for capitalism, and only about 175 or so years ago for communism. Anyhow, going back to that fruit... If I want to go get that fruit, I will need a home, a car, fuel, money, clothes, my health, food, water, electricity to get to the shop somehow. The seller probably needs all of those things too. Out of the gate then, both me and the seller, we have created entire jobs or industries around the world, such as building homes, selling homes, loaning renting, retail space, manufacturing, maintaining and selling cars, a whole fossil fuel industry, a government to build roads and bridges, a clothing industry, hospitals, doctor's offices, a food and water ecosystem, a sewage removal system, power utilities, maybe even plumbers. That is then multiplied millions of times so that each act has a corresponding link to the other, thus creating even more industries, more jobs, and more of everything. Imagine now a small town that has a factory that makes widgets. If that widget factory went away, you have a knock-on effect. 
The factory is gone, people leave, house prices fall, people refuse to move there, can't pay the loan, no income, supply chain businesses fail, shops and restaurants collapse, etc. An economy or economics or economies are not new or recently invented. Early humans traded goods. Even before money was invented, barter existed. But after money was invented, the concepts around the economy didn't come until way after money was invented. Enter Adam Smith. Adam Smith, born 1723, died 1790, was an economist and a philosopher, also known as the father of economics or the father of capitalism. Smith wrote two classic works. The first, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 1759, and the second, the most famous one, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, 1776, often abbreviated to just The Wealth of Nations. It's considered a masterpiece and often considered the first modern work of economics. If Adam Smith was the father of capitalist economic theory, then Karl Marx was the father of communist economic theory. Karl Hendrik Marx, born 1818, died 1883, was a German philosopher, economist, historian, sociologist, political theorist, journalist, and a philosophical socialist revolutionary. Due to his political publications, Marx became stateless and lived in exile with his wife and children in London for decades, outside his homeland of Germany, where he continued to develop his thought in collaboration with German thinker Frederick Engels and published his writings. Marx's best-known titles are the first one, 1848 pamphlet, The Communist Manifesto, and the three-volume 1867-1883 document Das Kapital. What these two gentlemen articulated for our purposes are two types of economies. One, a market economy, Adam Smith. Two, the planned economy, Karl Marx. So what is a market economy? Well, a market economy is an economic system in which the decisions regarding investment, production and distribution are guided by the price signals created by the forces of supply and demand. These market economies range from minimally regulated free market and sort of laissez-faire systems where state activity is restricted to providing just public goods and services and safeguarding private ownership. That's it. To interventionist forms on the other end where the government plays an active role in correcting market failures and promoting social welfare. A planned economy on the other hand is a type of economic system where investment, production, and the allocation of capital goods takes place according to economy-wide economic plans and production plans. A planned economy may use centralized, decentralized, participatory, or even Soviet-type forms of economic planning, typically five-year plans, The level of centralization or decentralization in decision-making and participation will depend on the specific type of planning mechanism employed in that locality. Remember, we are just talking about theory right now. In practice, most economies fall in between the two extremes. If you 
live in the North Korea of March 2021, then you are in a near-complete planned economy internally. China's is actually more market-driven than North Korea. Then again, China's will seem planned compared to India. India will seem planned compared to France, who will seem planned compared to Britain or the US. It's all relative. Even North Korea must trade internationally in a market-driven economy, even though they control absolutely the means of production inside their own country. The US, often considered the bastion of capitalism, has a massive government intervention program and a large planned economy. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's look at why and how supposedly capitalism and communism developed in the late 1700s and mid-1800s. You have to understand the situation in Europe at the time. There was something called the Enlightenment that was going on. The Enlightenment was a European intellectual movement in the 17th and 18th centuries in which ideas concerning God, reason, nature and humanity were synthesized into a worldview that gained general acceptance in mostly Northern and Western Europe, as well as a royal court in St. Petersburg. While all this was happening, the ideas that it secluded Western Europe from the rest of the planet because of strict adherence to Latin Christianity, i.e. Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, were being challenged by two things, or maybe three things. One, the discovery of the new world and new civilizations, or, to put it more honestly, the rediscovery of pre-existing lands and old world civilizations that Latin Christianity had reduced connections with after the Western Roman Empire fell apart in 476 AD. Two, increasingly open acceptance to overtly make money as a good thing, as opposed to the biblical concept of money being the root of all evil. And three, population growth, science and technology and so on. So, while Adam Smith is authoring his revolutionary thesis, it was revolutionary in some parts of the planet, but not all, because all Smith did was codify what everyone else already knew. Trade and commerce is, was, and will be part of human social behavior. As Adam Smith was codifying capitalism, south of the border in England, a German was codifying the planned economy. See, after Smith's book and before Marx's publication, we had the American Revolution, the French Revolution, Napoleon's Wars, and the 1848 revolutions, plus mass industrialization and colonialism. So, by 1848, when Marx did publish the Communist Manifesto, and more importantly for our story, the 1867 book Das Kapital, he codified what eventually became known as the planned economy. Now, a planned economy was something new, certainly more so than capitalism, but not outside the realm of human behavior. Absolute monarchies and even old city-states control their economies. But of course, Karl wanted more control in the modern context built out of workers' revolutions and so on and so forth. So rather a bottom-up plan rather than a top-down plan. So, to recap and to help simplify this, Western European economic thinking brought to us 
the codified versions of capitalism and communism, i.e. Adam Smith and Karl Marx. Hopefully, you're still with me. Now, we want to fast forward several decades to the World Wars and the Cold War. Enter Mr. John Maynard Keynes. Keynes, born 1883 and died 1946, was an English economist whose ideas fundamentally changed the theory and practice of macroeconomics and the economic policies of governments. He was originally trained in mathematics. He built on that and refined earlier works on the causes of business cycles. One of the most influential economists of the 20th century, this guy's ideas are the basis for the schools of thought known as Keynesian economics and its various offshoots. From the end of the Great Depression to the mid-1970s, Keynes provided the main inspiration for economic policymakers in Europe, America, and much of the rest of the world. The book, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, is the 1936 book by Keynes that caused a profound shift in economic thought, giving macroeconomics a principal place in economic theory and contributing much of his terminology to what became known as the Keynesian Revolution. It had equally powerful consequences in economic policy, being interpreted as providing theoretical support for government spending in general and for budgetary deficits, monetary intervention and counter-cyclical policies in particular. Counter-cyclical fiscal measures are policy measures which counteract the effects of the economic cycle. For example, counter-cyclical fiscal policy actions when the economy is slowing would include increasing government spending or cutting taxes to help stimulate the economic recovery. To many of the listeners right now in Western countries, that should sound awfully familiar because this is still the way in 2021, the way most Western governments operate today including the U.S. government. So, to recap, support for government spending, thus intervention, including monetary intervention, is a crucial part of Keynesian economic theory. In a classical scheme, it is the interest rate rather than the income which adjusts to maintaining an equilibrium between savings and investment. But Keynes asserts that the rate of interest already performs another function in the economy, that of equating demand and supply of money, and that it cannot adjust to maintain two separate equilibrium. In his view, it is the monetary role which wins out. Therefore, Keynes' theory is a theory of money as much as it is a theory of employment. The monetary economy of interest and liquidity interacts with the real economy of production, investment and consumption. Now, enter Mr. Milton Friedman, born 1912, died 2006, who was an American economist and statistician who received the 1976 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences for his research on consumption analysis, monetary history, and theory and the complexity of stabilization policy. Friedman was among the intellectual leaders 
of the Chicago School of Economics, a neoclassical school of economic thought associated with the work of the faculty at the University of Chicago in the US that rejected Keynesianism in favor of monetarism until about the mid-1970s when it turned to new classical macroeconomics heavily based on the concept of rational exceptions. That's just a fancy way of saying that his two most famous followers included Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, so you see where that's going. Friedman, along with Maggie and Ronnie, rejected Keynesian economic theory. That's what you need to know. Friedman promoted an alternative macroeconomic viewpoint known as monetarism and argues that a steady, small expansion of the money supply was the preferred policy. His ideas concerning monetary policy, taxation, privatization, and deregulation influenced government policies, particularly in Western countries, especially in the UK and the US, during the 1980s. Keynes was what we would term the left, while Friedman was to the right. But that was in the 1980s and 1990s. What the 2008 to 2009 financial crisis and then the 2020 to 2021 COVID lockdowns showed us is that economists will use massive government intervention, low interest rates and other measures to save our economic lifestyles. They know that a complete financial meltdown can mean massive unrest and violence or worse. It's better to intervene now and figure things out later. Today, if you live in any democracy or a country that has democratic leanings, you live under a Keynesian economic policy concept. Some segments of your economy are allowed to live under a Friedman-type system. Mostly those Parts of the economy are small and mid-sized businesses, but the overall management of the broad economy is almost entirely Keynesian-driven. If you live in a non-democratic country, you also have both Keynesian economics and Friedman economics going on. You may have more Keynes and less Friedman. Maybe the Friedman side is smaller than the Keynesian side, but you still have it. For example, a small hawker selling fruit in a street corner is under a Friedman economic model. The big companies in the government, well, they're running Keynesian economics. But if you're listening to this from a totalitarian country, one, really, and two, you don't have either of those. They tell you it's totalitarian. North Korea is one. And as of this point, I do not have a single North Korean listener. So, in short, the size of Friedman is bigger in the US than it is in France. But it is still there. More often than not, the ones operating in the Friedman-type economy are the real capitalists. And even in the US, after a company like Google or Citibank gets to a certain size, it moves from Friedman model to a Keynesian model because it becomes too big to fail. Before moving on to the measures of economic activity, there is one other form of activity that we need to tackle, and that is the informal economy. Now, most of us know there is an informal sector. It is not really measured or taxed. It is a massive part of the overall economy. In it, there are two types of informal economies, at least in my view. 
everything the government can intervene in, measure and tax is considered the white economy, like white money. In my view then, there are two other parts of the economy. One is the black economy and two is the gray economy. Let's tackle the gray economy first. Here, people that are mostly legal, like myself and hopefully you, might want to make a few dollars here and there and the odd euro here and there, and that is okay. Maybe not to the government as a whole, but for small things, maybe the government just turns a blind eye. Not least because politicians operate in this space a lot too. Let me give you an example. A street hawker and a house help, etc., typically fall into the grey economy because they're working on cash. They're not in the white economy where the cash is taxed and measured. Then there's the black economy. Here, just like the grey economy, but it's only bigger and it is outright illegal. And it's so big that the governments will go after you. Illicit funds go through this. And examples of the black economy include drug money and terror funding. The great irony of the grey and black economies is that they are pure play capitalist economies. They are Adam Smith and Friedman on steroids. Now that you know the basics of the economy, let's focus a bit on what the measures of the economy are. The most famous of these measures is the GDP or the gross domestic product. A chap called Sir William Petty, born 1623, died 1687, is attributed with the philosophy of laissez-faire in relation to government activity. This economic theory is that it is in an ecosystem in which transactions between private groups of people are free from, or almost free, from any form of government intervention such as regulations and subsidies. Petty actually came before Adam Smith, but didn't himself codify capitalism. He simply measured it. Though his various methods on everything from governance to interest rates, a theory of value, etc., he did all of that, but it is only by chance that he came up with what eventually became known as the GDP. It was much, much later, after in fact the Bretton Woods Conference of 1944, that GDP became the main tool for measuring a country's economy. At the time, gross national products was the preferred estimate, which differed from GDP in that it measured the production by a country's citizens at home and abroad rather than its resident institutional units. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD, defines GDP as, and I quote, an aggregate measure of production equal to the sum of the gross values added of all resident and institutional units engaged in production and services, plus any tax and minus any subsidies on products not included in the value of their outputs, end quote. An IMF publication states that, and I quote again, GDP measures the monetary value of final goods and services that are brought by the final user produced in a country in a given period of time, say a quarter or a year, end quote. Total GDP can also be broken down into the contribution of each industry or sector of the economy. 
the ratio of GDP to the total population of the region is the per capita GDP, and the same is called the mean standard of living. GDP is often used as a metric for international comparisons as well as a broad measure of economic progress. It is often considered to be the world's most powerful statistical indicator of national development and progress. GDP is ultimately a monetary measure of the market value of all the final goods and services produced in a specific time frame. So a nominal GDP per capita does not, however, reflect differences in the cost of living and the inflation rates of those countries. Therefore, using a basis of GDP per capita at purchasing power parity, remember that PPP, purchasing power parity, is arguably more useful when comparing living standards between nations, while nominal GDP is more useful comparing national economies on the international market. GDP can be determined in three ways, all of which theoretically give the same result. They are the production or output added value, the approach, the income approach, or the speculated expenditure approach. The most direct of the three is the production approach, which sums up the outputs for every class or enterprise to arrive at the total. The expenditure approach works on the principle that all of the product must be bought by somebody, therefore the value of the product total must equal to the people's total expenditures in buying things. The income approach, on the other hand, works on the principle that the incomes of the productive factors, i.e. the producers, must be equal to the value of their product and determines GDP by finding the sum of all producers' incomes. Now, going back to what I said earlier, the PPP or the purchasing power parity. This PPP is a measurement of prices in different countries that uses the prices of specific goods to compare the absolute purchasing power of the country's currencies. In many cases, PPP produces an inflation rate that is equal to the price of the basket of goods at one location divided by the price of basket goods at another location. The PPP inflation and exchange rates may differ from the market exchange rate because of poverty, tariffs, and other transactional costs. So, I think PPP is a better measure than GDP because it tells you the ability to purchase a product. So, somebody buying a product in South Africa versus Norway because the price of the product and the ability to buy the product in both those countries are totally different. This, of course, is somewhat debated, but then again, I do feel strongly that PPP remains a better measure than GDP. There are other measures outside GDP and PPP or even the GNP, i.e. the gross national product, and we'll tackle these now. So one is the interest rates. The interest rate is the interest rate set by the government. This is the rate governments lend, borrow money, and it's also the rate that the banks lend and borrow money. Then there's government debt. This is the debt the government has, and often it is sold as bonds. Rates of inflation. That's the general price of goods that we pay when we go out and buy something. If inflation is up, we pay more. Inflation is down, also known as deflation, we pay less. Unemployment. That's the number of people out of a job. Balance of trade is the difference between the imports and exports of a country versus another country. Consumer spending. That's how much you and I are spending. Exchange rate. 
That's the value of your domestic currency versus another domestic currency. And the stock market, that ultimately is a share bazaar where companies raise debt and equity, and then that debt and equity is traded. Everything I've just listed, all of these are measured and controlled by the government. The government also has oversight of so-called free markets, small and medium-sized businesses included. So it can be measured to collect taxes. Yes, you are free to lose money and go out of business. But if you make money, then the government wants to see some of it, if it's part of the white economy. There are, of course, two types of economies. There's the macroeconomy and the microeconomy. The macro is a big picture, the GDP of the UK, or the size of the tech industry. The microeconomy is a trade at the local level, determined by supply and demand. Me, going into a store, buy fruit, is a microeconomy. I plan to dedicate the entire next episode to the stock market, but oftentimes it is not a measure of the real economy, but of economic sentiment of traders and punters. Then there's also currency. I have a whole episode, episode 10, talking about money, its story, all the way to cryptocurrencies and decentralized investment. So go check that out after you're done with this episode. Anyway, getting back to this, this story, supply and demand. Essentially, if there's plenty of supply, demand will be low, and low supply, demand will be high. This is a very crude, non-economist example, but that is what it is. It applies to both goods and to services. At the start of this podcast, I used the example of the 2020 to 2021 COVID lockdowns. The governments locked down the economy. In many countries, it led to, oddly, a shortage of toilet paper. High demand resulting in low supply, soaring prices. Same went for cleaning products. So they locked down and shut parts of the economy. In short order, they enforced the microeconomy to close, like public transportation, hotels and many businesses, restaurants and so on, to stop the spread of a virus impacting the healthcare systems. But these shutdowns were so extensive that they had a direct impact on the macroeconomy and the overall GDP of the country. Governments intervened, pumped stimulus money into the economy, and then told people to discontinue many economic activities that they had consumed just weeks before. To me, that sounds like Keynes at 80% and Marx at 20%. Maybe. Not even Keynes or Marx would have predicted that a government would be able to even do something like this. However, modern technology enabled it. The same thing happened during the 2008 to 2009 financial crisis. Massive government stimulus bailouts of giant too-big-to-fail companies in Western countries to avert what the government planners thought would lead to complete collapse. In 2008 and 2009, the bailouts went to the corporations. In 2020 and 2021, it went to the public. So what is the economy? Have you heard the term lies, damn lies, and statistics? Sometimes it is attributed to British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, sometimes to the American writer Mark Twain. But it was probably Sir Charles Dilk, an English Liberal Party radical, lesser known than either of those two. But anyway, whoever came up with it hit the nail on the head. It is hard to come up with real actual numbers inside one's own household 
or the organization we may work at, how on earth can you measure the economy and have an economic policy that works? It's not possible. The powerful elites are winging it every day. The government elites have the ability to measure whatever they like and when they want to. They often amend the criteria of the measure and fudge the results. Some might say, well, you can trust a Western government over others. Hmm, really? Well, 2008 and 2009 showed us you can't. The government and even the private agencies like S&P and Moody's among almost all the banks were happy to play along whatever music was playing at the time. Government officials pray and hope the next economic crisis does not force them to pony up more imagined currency. Well, what about the future? The future of the economy, the economy, can mean more decentralization as digital commerce, crypto, and the grey economy get bigger, though I bet governments will try and control all of that too. A newish concept is the gig economy, where people do odd jobs via a digital platform, like drive taxis using an Uber. But in non-Western countries, that has been normal for quite a while. Most of the people working in it have been in the grey economy. In fact, oddly, conversely, with digital, the governments in those countries can actually now measure and tax and control that grey activity. So my view on what is a good economy is this, and I look at it purely from an ultra-micro perspective. Do I have enough money to survive today and tomorrow? Am I better off than I was yesterday? Do I have savings? Are my investments doing okay? Oh, and do I have investments? And finally, do I have an income? And is it good? And is it going up? Stuff like universal basic income and crypto come about, but they are simply other tools to mitigate hunger and poverty. The real economy is your own personal wealth. Spend wisely. Thank you for listening. Please follow, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. Thank you. You are listening to an alternative history podcast. Thank you.